I am thrilled with today's guest, Boomer Siason, a New York legend, a legend actually in the country. He is the host of the top-rated uh, Boomer and Geo show, kicking ASPN's ass all over New York. He's, of course, also one of the hosts of the NFL Today on CBS, along with Bill Cower and Nate Burleson and Phil Sims and uh, who would I forget? And, Jim, and James Brown. Uh, he's a former NFL MVP, all-around good guy. Most importantly... Uh, head of the Boomer Foundation, Boomer Siason Foundation, has raised over $100 million for cystic fibrosis, and his son Gunner has uh, been one of the beneficiaries of that. We're going to talk about that. I can't believe he's a, your grandfather, that Gunner now is a son. <laughs> I remember seeing this Sports yeah. Illustrated in a cover with, with him on your shoulders. And, and first of all, tell me, how, how's Gunner doing? You know, Donnie, it's great to see you again. We haven't seen each other in a long time, and yeah. it's great to talk to you. Uh, Gunner's doing great. You know, he's 32 years old now. Jesus. Uh, which is really a miracle all into itself. Yeah. When he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis back in 1993, and we did grace the cover of Sports Illustrated, he was on my shoulders, and they titled the, art, uh, the, the, uh, the article A Quarterback's Crusade because at that time, the median age for CF patients was 19. And they told us that there was a good chance Gunner was going to be able to go to college, and sure enough, they were right about that. He went to he went to BC for four years, got incredibly sick at school. You know, a couple of times he had to come home for extended period of times. He had a lot of lung infections, and cystic fibrosis is an extremely difficult disease to understand for the layperson. But it's a genetic defect that affects many organs in the body, mainly the lungs. And uh, you know, he was having a hard time breathing, had a lot of bacterial infections. And when he graduated in 2013, I think it was, he felt like he was at end stage illness, which would have meant a double lung transplant, which is not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. Right. And then in about 2017, he got involved in a drug trial from a company called Vertex out of Boston. And that drug trial changed his life. And um, it gave him a reason to live. He did not have to go through a double lung transplant. He met a beautiful girl. Uh, they moved uh, up to Hanover at Dartmouth. He went to the Tuck School of Business, found a wow. new lease on life. And then lo and behold, in 2021, he gets married. And right before he gets married, he gets married on Father's Day two years ago, essentially. Um, he uh, has a party and it's their family and our family. And they hand me my Father's Day gift, and it's a sonogram of wow. my grandson, <laughs> Casper, who was going to be born uh, December uh, of 2021, and he was born on Christmas Eve. So, uh, you know, the miracles never really stopped happening. And to this day, I'm, I'm very proud of Gunnar that he has not only graduated the, you know, Boston College and Dartmouth Tuck School of Business, but he's also moved on to greener pastures other than just our foundation. He is working for a company called Florence Health. He's got his own life. He lives in New Canaan. And uh, if you would have told me that would have been the case back in 1993 when that little boy was on my shoulders, uh, I could say that's what I was hoping and praying for. And, and, and we're living it now. I could practically cry. Um, you, I want to talk a little bit about your past, then we got a lot to talk about with sports and politics and things like that. But I just, in all the reading, your dad sounds like one of them. I know you lost him, you know, almost a little over 20 years ago. Yep. Sounds like one of the most incredible men of all time. You lose your mother at age seven. Your dad's 44. Never looked at another woman the rest of his life and basically dedicated himself to just to, to you. I mean, your, your sisters were a bit older. But I, I mean, just talk to me a little bit about Norman. Well, my dad was uh, part of the greatest generation, you know, a generation uh, he was born during the Depression. 
He was asked to go fight for his country in World War II, spent uh, 16 to 17 months in Europe in theater. Um, he used to tell me that after the war was over, supposedly in 1945, that the six months following that he had to spend over there was probably the worst six months because you really not, you didn't know where the bullets and the shrapnel were coming from. At least uh, when, when he first got there, he knew who he was fighting against. Uh, after that, uh, after the, you know, uh, the, the war was over, supposedly, it really got difficult for our American soldiers over there. I don't think a lot of people realize that. So, um, you know, he did dedicate his life to me. There's no question about that. I know that. And you're right. My mother did die when I was seven. Um, she was the light of his life. Uh, they lived a relatively normal, simple life. Uh, he moved out to East Islip, Long Island, which was a, a farm community back in 1959. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and basically never missed a practice or a game that I was ever a part of. I don't necessarily know that either one of us expected me to get to where I got to, but it was really the only way out for me was going to be through athletics. And, and he sacrificed to make sure that would happen. What was the turning point for you? you you're at University of Maryland. You're a Terp. You're down on the depth chart. You're about to leave school. You were like seven on the depth chart. What was the what was kind of the, the moment that all of a sudden things clicked for you? Because uh, you you became you became a a a, a record setting quarterback at, at and obviously it was it was the pathway to the NFL. But what what changed for you? You know I don't I don't really know what changed. All I know is I was a much better baseball player in high school, and I could have went to St. John's to play baseball with John Franco and Frank Viola. Think about oh, that, wow, the three wow. of us on that St. John's baseball wow, team. Wow, But But I chose football, and it wasn't because I had this uh, huge list of scholarship offers. I only had one school offer me a scholarship, and that was Maryland, and I took it, and thinking that I was going to be able to play baseball there as well, but that didn't work out that way. Um, you know, I failed out of school twice. Uh, I was redshirted my, my sophomore year. I was recruiting a quarterback out of Pennsylvania uh, who was the hot quarterback of that time. It wasn't Jim Kelly. It wasn't Dan Marino. It wasn't Todd Blackledge. It was a kid by the name of Frank Reich. So I, uh, I recruited him to Maryland. And the only reason he came to Maryland is because the Maryland coaches told him, don't worry about Boomer. He's not going to be here. He's either getting married or he's going to fail out of school. Uh, and I, I, The reason I was failing was because I wasn't playing. I was buried on the depth chart. As you said, I, when I got there, I was 11th string on the depth chart because there were 110 guys on the team. And then by the time I was able to start, uh, I almost got kicked off the team because we lost the game at Vanderbilt. Two guys in front of me got hurt. They did not play me. They kept one guy in there who could barely move. And I yelled at the, the offensive coordinator before we got on our plane to go back to Maryland. And they told me that uh, I had to go see the coach at 530 on Sunday morning, Coach Jerry Claiborne, who was no joke. So went to that, and uh, he told me, why should I keep you on this team after the way that you acted yesterday? I said, if you want to win football games, then I should be your starting quarterback. And uh, so lo and behold, that's how it all happened for me, and I got, I got to be able to become the starter in 81. But it was 82 and 83 where I really found my game because we got a new coach. His name was Bobby Ross. He brought in a new offensive coordinator. His name was Ralph Friedgen. And those guys unlocked the true potential of all the great football players that were at Maryland for the short time that they were there. Yeah, and obviously you go on to Cincinnati Bengals, become a, a four-time uh, pro bowler there. Um, talk to me about the moment you realized you were going to the Super Bowl. You said it was the greatest moment of your career. You, just, you were about to beat the Buffalo Bills. Take yep. me to that moment. Well, you know, that was about four years into my career. Uh, you know, I was lucky to be drafted by Cincinnati, albeit in the second round. I thought I was going to be in the first round. Of course, we all do. 
Uh, that was a little bit of a humbling wake-up call for me. When I got there, Sam Weiss had just become the head coach. He was a former NFL quarterback who was a quarterback coach for the 49ers and coached Joe Montana underneath Bill Walsh. So he brought that West Coast offense back to Cincinnati. Kenny Anderson was there. Chris Collinsworth was there. Turk Scherner was there. Anthony Munoz, Max Montoya. This is like had to be one of the smartest wow. yeah. Uh, yeah. locker rooms ever in the history of the NFL. And uh, my first year didn't go so well, but my second year I took over for Kenny. And then two years later, we found our way to the Super Bowl. And the fact that the year before 1987, we were on strike and I was the player representative for the Bengals and I was everybody's worst enemy in Cincinnati to the next year becoming the NFL MVP and leading the team to the Super Bowl enhanced that whole feeling of like, I can't believe I'm going to the Super Bowl, especially after what happened the prior year. So it was uh, it was it was an incredible, incredible run. And you think as a young player that you're always going to be able to go back. Sure, there. sure. But but there are a lot of things that are done outside of your control as a player by ownership, by coaches, even by your own standards. Sometimes they slip in the middle of your career and you, you take for granted what you're able to do. And then all of a sudden you lose it. So uh, I think there was a combination of all of that. And I always thought that the grass was going to be greener somewhere else. And boy, when I got to the Jets, I was uh, sorely mistaken because in three years that I played for the Jets, Mr. Hess had hired three different coaches. And who, who are you? I'm, I'm a lifelong suffering Jet fan. <laughs> I forgot who the three. Let, let me guess who the three coaches were. Sure. Did you? You didn't have Kotite, did you? That was that was after you. Oh no, I had him. Oh, you <laughs> one in fifteen. Rich Kotite. No, Kotite. No, three and th- we were three and thirteen. Three and thirteen. Um. Let me see. It was Kotite. It was, um, you didn't have Herm Edwards, did you? I did not have Herm Edwards. Nope. All right. Take, I, I'm only remembering Kotite because uh, it's just- You'll the, know who they are. You'll know who they are. When I, I got know traded, the names. Yes. When I got traded to the Jets, the reason I got traded to the Jets is my former offensive coordinator in Cincinnati had become the head coach of the Jets. His name was Bruce Coslett. Coslett, that's right. That's right. right so, my, so my first year, I come to the Jets. I go there to the were Pro big, Bowl. There was big hopes for Coslett. He had, he had right. like, there was really big hopes on him. There was. So the first year I came here in 1993, I go to the Pro Bowl. We go eight and eight. We miss the playoffs by one game. They fire Bruce in the offseason and they hire our defensive coordinator. His name is Pete Carroll. Oh, okay. That was right. That was one of the so, one of the bright spots. One of the bright spots. Yeah, but he was only for one year because yeah. right after that year, we we collapsed at the end of that season, just like we did the previous season again. And Leon Hess was getting frustrated, and he decided to fire Pete Carroll after one year. And then they brought in Richie Kotite. And I have to tell you, I went from I want to say like a PhD in football with Pete Carroll, Bruce Coslett, and Sam Weish to remedial reading class with uh, Richie <laughs> Kotite. It was, I, I knew the first day in practice when he said, I don't care about anything but Sunday that we were going to be in trouble. And he was in control of the entire roster. And he ripped it all the way down with the exception of me. I was really the only veteran that was left on the offensive side of the football. And we had a lot of guys that they brought in, left all over the place, had no idea what the hell we were doing in the, in the huddle. You know, Wayne Corbett was his rookie year. Um, he was our starting flanker. So he was playing the position of five foot ten rookie out of Hofstra, was playing the right. same position that Jerry Rice plays in the West Coast offense. And, yeah. you know, poor Wayne, you know, like he wasn't really sure about what he was doing. I knew he was tough. I knew he was brave. And I knew he wanted to learn. So I would try to coach him on the side after practice. 
to let him know what my expectations were on the field because nothing was happening in the meeting rooms. Nobody was really discussing any of this stuff. But you have to go really, real. you have to go in depth. It is like a symphony orchestra that is on steroids and has a lot of anxiety and pressure. That's what playing football is like. You all have to be in sync with one another. And we were just completely lost. So I, I knew after that season, that 3-13 and 13 season, that I was going to be gone. And they were going to spend about $80 million in free agency back then in 1996, I believe it was. That's a lot of money. And they brought in Neil O'Donnell, new quarterback. Mm-hmm. Uh, new Jumbo Elliott came in. There was a lot of uh, wide receivers they brought in. And they went 1-15 that year. And that's when you know they finally said enough is enough. And they went out and got Parcells. Yeah. What is it about? We've got two teams in New York here. We've got the Knicks and we've got the Jets that we've gone a half a century without championships. If you were going to kind of just basically say as a guy who who understands this town, understands the sport, what what makes an organization so unsuccessful? I mean, a lot of people, there's a lot of Jim Dolan ripping, but there's a reason. And obviously different ownership now. You've got Woody Johnson running the Jets. But there's a reason a te- teams go a half a century. How do you articulate it? Instability. That, that is the, the key to success is stability, being consistent in your beliefs and your culture and setting that culture behind somebody who is truly going to be all in and finding somebody that's not out there for a money grab. You know, Jim Dolan has made so many misfires and mishires over the last 25 years. It's like it's beyond even comprehension. Yeah. I don't think there has been another team, maybe the Cleveland Browns, that have been as poorly run. Uh, and I think he tries to hire the right guy. Uh, he'll spend any amount of money to give that guy a chance to win. But at the end of the day, I don't necessarily know that that guy is truly an all-in guy and can handle the media here in New York. Same thing can be said for the Jets. You know, you keep firing coaches. You know, they finally had Rex Ryan here for, what, eight years? And there was, believe it or not, as unstable as Rex But there was a culture. There was a real culture there, there. yeah. There, yeah, there, there was some stability with him. And he and Mike Tannenbaum together really did a pretty good job. But then they brought in Tim Tebow for some reason. I have no right. idea why. And the perception of that was like, here we go again, where the Jets, we make these stupid decisions. And they fell back into that, that same realm of instability. And they have been trying to find the right coach and, and GM combination ever since then. And I, I got to say this, Donnie, I do believe that the Jets finally found the right general manager in Joe Douglas. Seems I mean, to like be making, is, seems to have made the right moves. I mean, yeah, he, he, he is, really, he's, a, yeah. he's an all-in guy. You know, he is an all-in guy. He eats, sleeps, and drinks football. He doesn't play golf. He doesn't, you know, he's not out, you know, doing stupid crap. He's, he's a scout at heart, but he's also a guy that, you know, is easy to like and easy to respect. And I know that all of the players over there at uh, Florham Park in Florham Park do respect Joe Douglas without question. So that at least they got that part of it right finally. And I think, you know, maybe this is the season at least they'll make a run. But the problem is the AFC is so loaded with great quarterbacks yeah. and young players that it's not going to be easy for Aaron Rodgers to navigate that. Well, I, you know, along those lines, they've got – I, I was very skeptical about the Rodgers signing. They've got this great nucleus of young guys. You've got Sauce Gardner. You've got Williamson. You've, you've got a um, uh, great young receiver. You've got a core of young guys. So how, doesn't it change the math so dramatically when you bring in 
an all-time great like that, it changes the locker room, it changes the focus from the young players. And I was, I'm one of those guys that like, no, you're building something, you just don't go for that grab. That Because obviously, look, Rodgers, he could be over, he could have another three great years, you don't know. But now the focus is not on those young guys. And I don't know, if I, I ran a company... I would not, if I had a bunch of young, great, I ran an agency, great young copywriters, I'm not going to bring in one guy that's going to overshadow them and change the whole math of the team. Well, you know, quarterback's a little bit different in the NFL. If you don't have one, you don't have a chance. Right. And Zach Wilson was just way too immature to understand and even appreciate the, the, the amount of pressure that he was going to be under and how he was going to be able to handle it. Um, I think there's two reasons why you bring in Aaron Rodgers. One is because they do have a lot of great young players, including Garrett Wilson and Sauce Gardner and Brees Hall, and they're loaded at tight end. They just have to figure their offensive line out a little bit, but the veteran quarterback will make everybody better. And it's already evidence you can see on the practice field. I think it was about three days into OTAs, which don't really mean much, except for this is where you set the tone for your season. The offense was not having a, a good practice, and I was told that Aaron Rodgers in the middle of practice stopped the practice, brought the offense together, and gave them a tongue lashing like nobody has ever done before in, the, in, in, in front of anybody in that building. Like they've never seen a quarterback take hold of a practice, stop it, and start screaming at players and throwing F-bombs all over the place. And it was something that completely changed the whole dynamic of the team. You know, I know the building is excited. The building hasn't been this excited since Rex Ryan walked okay. in the door. And I'm just telling you, he is a great player um, who hopefully does for the Jets what Tom Brady did for Tampa Bay. I was wondering yeah. whether or not he was going to be all in, if Aaron Rodgers was going to be all in. Meaning all in, is he coming to the OTAs? Is he coming to the mini camps? Well, not only is he all in, hell, he's going to the Tonys, Nick Games, Ranger Games, yeah, yeah, Met Games. Yeah, yeah. And he's all over the place. He's going to Taylor Swift at MetLife Stadium. <laughs> Dancing around, know, right. Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran, Met, MetLife Stadium. So I got to tell you, Aaron Rodgers has soaked up all of New York in the last six weeks and it proves to me at least mentally, he seems to be all in, which is a good thing. You mentioned Zach Wilson. I have uh, some people that work on the Jets who just said that he never had the team, that he just, he kind of came in, people saw him as kind of a spoiled, entitled guy and just does not have the team. And once you lose that team, it's tough to get it back. That's true. And I think one of the other aspects of signing Aaron Rodgers is to teach this young man how to become a professional quarterback. And there's a lot of things that go into that. You have to know your offense inside and out. you you got to be poised on the field uh, beyond reproach. Those 10 guys in that huddle are looking at you and the other 36 guys standing on the sideline are looking at you and they want to know that they have a leader that can win games for them as opposed to throw games away like Zach did last year. You know, there were moments last year where Zach really looked good on the field and it's hard to convince a Jet fan, especially one that has been around and been a Jet fan as long as you have been, that there is talent there. What, what got in the way of the talent is the brain and, you know, the lack of leadership abilities and the lack of, you know, human interaction with the players and understanding who they are and how they are and how they work and how you have to kind of work each and every player differently. So he's got to learn that and he'll watch Aaron Rodgers do that. That's one of the things already I can already see is happening. And I know that in the back of Joe Douglas's mind, what he's hoping here, he's hoping that Aaron Rodgers has the effect on Zach Wilson that Joe Montana had on uh, Steve, Steve Young. Young. Yeah. Because people forget Steve Young went to the, we came out the same year. 
And he went to the USFL and he went to the LA Express and took a big contract. I did not go to the USFL. I wanted to play in the NFL. When Steve came back into the NFL, he was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who are a horrible organization. And they drafted him. And if you look at his numbers when he was in Tampa, they're very similar of the numbers that Zach Wilson put up his first two years here with the Jets. Then Bill Walsh traded for him and he sat and he watched Joe Montana. And then when Bill Walsh felt like it was time and he was ready, they shipped Joe Montana out to Kansas City. So I think this is exactly what Joe Douglas is hoping okay. that ha- to have happen here for the Jets is to win now, but also groom this young Setting quarterback up, yeah. to be the future. Yeah. Mentioned Steve Young, him and Kenny Stable, the only two lefty quarterbacks with more wins than my guest today, Boomer Siason. <laughs> we like to throw those little facts. What do you think of Sailor? You know, I think uh, I, you know, I think the jury's still out on Rob Sala. I think he's a uh, he's definitely got the media wrapped around his finger. Uh, there haven't been a lot of situations that I've seen over the last couple of years where he's really been put uh, over the coals in terms of in-game decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, the fact that they brought in Nathaniel Hackett offensively is really going to help him as a head coach because he won't have to worry about the offense as much as he did prior uh, with the inexperience on the coaching staff. So I think this all of this is going to help him be a better coach and even a more aggressive coach, I think, on offense. I think in today's NFL, with the quarterbacks that you're going to be playing against each and every week and the offensive players, you know, the idea is not only have a good defense, but keep the ball away from the other team's offense. And the best way to do that is to be aggressive, especially on fourth down. Fourth and less than five, north of your 35, the 40-yard line. With Aaron Rodgers on the field, you got to go for it, I would think, almost every single time when the game is on the line. Shifting gears for a second, I read where you think you have CTE. That you, I mean, I was kind of, I was a very, I, I, the way you said, I was just like, huh? I mean, that seemed like a very big statement. Well, I think we all think we have it. Um, there's no question about that. Um, there's no controversy behind it. I mean, if you played in the NFL and you had your head smashed around as much as we did, especially when we played, the concussion was complete, uh, treated Protocol was different. different. Yeah, yeah. Totally different. As a matter of fact, in 1995, under Richie Kotite, when he was the coach, um, I think I was the first player in NFL history to go into what they called concussion protocol. I took a pretty nasty shot from Bruce Smith, and I missed, I believe, the next four games. And I had to go through all these weird steps to, to make sure that my concussion was healing and that I was uh, able to return to, to, to the field again. And I, I think that really helped me. And then people would say to me, how many concussions do you think you've had? I said, if I go all the way back to high school where we wore suspension helmets and then, you know, college uh, getting beat around like a, like a rag doll, the first couple of years, you're basically just getting, you know, totally steamrolled by the defense. Um, it, I would say 15 or more uh, would probably be my guess, which would lead me to believe that like everybody else, I'm probably suffering some from CTE in some sort of way, shape, or fashion. Do you have any symptoms? I mean, any anything that you see in your daily life that suggests to you that you're in kind of early early symptoms of CTE? I mean, is there anything? I don't. You know, I'm 62 years old now, so do I forget a word every now and again? I sure, think you, 60, you, and me, you and me both. Uh, yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. So I mean, like we have those issues, but um, 
Yeah, like I, I, I've said it, and I and I feel very strongly about it. The one thing I will say is that I am glad that all the things that have come out of all of this is that at least the NFL is taking the issue and has taken the issue, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, a hell of a lot more seriously than we Neanderthals did back when I played and the Neanderthals before us. So it's uh, it's still a very physical and demanding game. Uh, there, I Sometimes I think we're our own worst enemies because I still see guys today playing in the NFL and in college as well you know the hit was significant. You know that there was brain contact there, but yet they still get up, they run off the field, and they collect their wherewithal, if you will, within the moment, and then they'll go back right on the field again without anybody taking them off the field. So I know that that's still in the game and that still resonates within the player himself. Let's shift to Boomer and Geo for a second. In the latest books, you just kicked ESPN's ass. You guys are dominating in the morning. You got four hours of, of live radio every morning, and um, what what makes it work? Uh, I think chemistry. You know, I've uh, done this now for I, I think I'm in my 17th year now, Donnie, and I've worked with two tremendously talented co-hosts, Carton the first 10 years, and now Geo the next seven years, and both of them bring something different, completely different to the table. And um, People say, how much longer do you want to do this? I always say, as long as I'm still laughing, I'm going to still show up because laughing is really, I mean, is is the best part of the show. And both of those guys were completely unpredictable in many different ways. And if you have chemistry with that person, then you could go on forever. It's when the chemistry all of a sudden becomes a problem. And that's when people split up, like Mike and Chris split up. And, you know, there's there's millions of people that have done this job. Shannon Sharp, Shannon Sharp now. and uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, because people take things too personally, you know. So yeah. one thing I learned from Craig Carton, because while I was used to TV and radio, being a talk show host is a completely different set of circumstances. And Carton would come walking into that studio, and it was like four hours of a stand-up comedy routine. Right. And that wasn't Craig Carton that I knew outside the studio. That was Craig Carton inside the studio. And once I told him, I said, this is off limits. That's off limits. And we never touch these areas because they're taboo either for you or for me. Then we're going to get along fabulously. And for 10 years, uh, we never had a crossword coming out of that studio, which is amazing. And obviously a tough Tough time for you when obviously he ran into all kinds of problems, and all of a sudden you now 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 your co-host, this great guy that you're doing you're doing a, a ten years with, is going off to jail. How, how did you deal with that? Yeah, that was not easy. Um, hmm. You know, he did a really amazing job of keeping all of us out of it. That's the thing. There was a documentary done on him, and I think it really truly explained how he was able to hide all of that stuff from us. Um, I do know that in the, in the summer of 2017, I, I saw signs that something was going on. I saw a lot of weird behavior, a lot of weird phone calls in between like what? breaks. What? Give me an example. I mean, like I remember he was screaming at uh, he was screaming at a casino for not depositing two million dollars into his account. Oh Jesus! And yeah. I looked at him. I said, "They're not giving you two million dollars." He goes, "Yeah," and it was a casino in Bimini. So I guess they flew he uh, flew him and his family and friends down to Bimini for a long weekend because he's a whale, right? So yeah, sure. They give him all the access you could possibly want, and uh, he won two million dollars. And uh, he came back that Monday or Tuesday of that week, and I think I want to say it was either May or June of seventeen, and he was literally screaming in the phone 
that that money better be in my account. And I was like, man, dude, I hope you're putting some of that money away for your kid's education. Yeah. yeah. And then literally three, four months later is when he was arrested. And none of us really knew what was going on. I knew it was uh, the, either the Tuesday or the Wednesday after Labor Day. And uh, I was shocked that he wasn't coming in that morning. And I was told that he was sick. And then around seven o'clock, an hour into our show, it started coming across the crawl on the bottom of the screen that WFAN's Craig Carton was arrested by the FBI that morning. And I'm sitting there with a camera in my face and a microphone. And my program director, Mark Chernoff, comes running in saying, don't say anything. Don't say anything. And I'm like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> right. Sky's falling. Don't say anything. Right. Right. So I just uh, I basically I just said, look, this is what happened. We'll find out more and we'll discuss it more. But I have no idea why this is and what's going on and why he's arrested. But the six months after that, it was the hardest part for me personally, because my name was, you know, in every article with a guy who was arrested by the FBI for fraud. So it was Boomer and Carton, Craig Carton working with Boomer and Carton, every news article, every every news media report led with that. And that my name was in all that stuff. And I'm running a non-for-profit foundation and I can't have that kind of stuff, you know, hanging around me. So I had to make sure that I could shore up everybody that has ever supported us, make sure they know they know that I wasn't involved in anything. And really was estranged from Craig. That was the first time that I really got mad at him because it, it put all of us in a really, sure, really tough spot. And it's not like we work in an office. I mean, we got cameras and microphones in front of our face. We have to show up every day and do our job. And we had to talk around it. And all I remember is, for the most part, I tried to talk as reverently as I could about Craig because I do love him. Uh, and I do think that he's incredibly talented. But I also know that between the ADD, the restless leg syndrome, the touch of Tourette's and everything else going on in him, uh, he's an extremely complicated guy to get to know. But once you know him, you love him. But he also can drive you crazy and frustrate you as well at the same time. Well, he's reinvented himself. He's back. Um, so hopefully he stays on the straight narrow and obviously as you said a complicated guy but we'll continue to continue to, to watch that let's shift to the nfl today um i always wonder you guys it's it's kind of like a, a symphony in that you got a bunch of guys on set yet you never step on each other it somehow it it works I, i'm always curious in the break, coming out of the break, is it like, okay, boom, you go first, and then James, you go, and then you go like, because it really, it, it, I, I, there's no crosstalk, and that almost seems impossible, but yet it reads as a conversation. You know, uh, it, it is a formula because it's a Sunday morning show. Everybody has to remember that it's 12 noon on Sunday. It's not 1030 on T- TBS yeah. you know, at night when everybody's drinking wine or smoking weed yeah. or whatever. And yeah. guys are screaming <laughs> back and forth at each other. I mean, we are on for an hour. We have five segments. And pretty much those segments are all divvied up amongst the four of us, including James Brown, depending on what the story of the week may be. So... First and foremost, to work in that format, you've got to have a lot of respect for the people you work with yeah. and don't ever take their opinions you know, personally. If they say something that may offend you or something something that you may have said about a particular team, and just you got to kind of work together as a team. Coach Cower is, uh, is awesome to work with. 
Nate Burleson is a, a rising star. He will mm-hmm. be a, a, the king of CBS, mark my words, for the next 20 years, unless somebody else steps up and gives him the money that you know yeah. he could easily command. And, you know, and, and working with Phil Sims is is an absolute pleasure. I mean, and sparring back and forth with him. You guys are great. Yeah, you guys are great. Yeah, it makes it even yeah. funnier. So, I don't know. It's a great show. We all love going. That's another thing I say. I've been doing that for 22 years. And I'll stop doing that when either I'm tired of talking football or when it's not fun anymore. All right. Talking football, we're, we're a month away from, you know, kind of preseason. Or when, when did the pads start? July? Yeah, the end of July depends on if you're in the uh, Hall of Fame game or not. The Jets are in the Hall of Fame game, right? So they'll 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 uh, report about ten days earlier than uh, the other teams. I think they're playing the Browns. I'm not sure who they're playing in the Hall of Fame game, but I think it is the Browns. I think it is the Browns. Actually, everybody's in around mid mid to late July, and then some other teams really at the end of July uh, because it's a 17 week season now. It's a long season. It's It's arduous. It's intense. And uh, there's expectations all over the league at that point in time. So I think most most teams, you know, will be in probably by Ju- July 27th being the latest. All right. So predictions for this year, I'm going to hold you to it. Early on, <laughs> obviously, I mean, the Chiefs, you, 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 it's tough to bet against the Chiefs. They got everything in place. Uh, got a lot, a lot, a lot of strong contenders, though. I'm curious what you think. I love your Bengals. I, I, I'm a yeah, Bengals I guy. I, I, Burrow, to <laughs> me, is... He is just the guy. I've never, I mean, talk about cool. Cool as a yeah. cucumber, in charge, without any hoopla. Uh, so I'm picking the Bengals early on. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, Donnie, he's like, the, he's the Tom Brady of this era. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's the Absolutely. way he is. Maybe even be physically more gifted than Tom Brady. Hopefully he's as dedicated as Tom Brady. We'll find out. Uh, but yeah, when you think of the AFC, though, there are you know all the top quarterbacks pretty Bills, much are in the I mean, AFC. Yeah. So yeah, you got the, you got the Bills. Believe it or not, you got the Jaguars who are loaded up. Uh, you have the Bengals. You have the Chargers who have loaded up. You got Kansas City. Uh, I, I mean, like this this thing is just uh, it, it could come down to probably if I had a guess, it's going to come down to Joe Burrow versus Patrick Mahomes again. Yeah. But I think the Jets have a shot. I mean, they got a really good, young, talented group. I, I think that their division is tough for sure. I don't necessarily know it's any tougher than the AFC North that has Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson. What do you think of Lawrence? I think Trevor Lawrence is a terrific player. He had a great, he had, they won seven out of their last eight games last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Had a comeback playoff game for the ages. And almost beat Kansas City in Kansas City on the second round of the playoffs. So they're right there. They got a great coach in Doug Peterson. That, this is why the Jets went out and got Aaron Rodgers. They looked in the landscape of the AFC, Donnie, and they were like, holy crap, look Shit, at all yeah. these young quarterbacks. They are loaded all over the place. And that's why whichever two teams are standing at the end, you know, that's why I say Patrick Mahomes and Joe Mart with Joe Burrow will be standing at the end, and we'll see that, those guys in an AFC Championship game again. I believe. And the NFC, I love the Lions. I love their coach. I fell in love with them during Hard Knocks. I mean, he is just fucking great. I mean, you just got to love that guy. He's the Neanderthal. You know, it's the yeah. Neanderthal generation. He's the Mike he Ditka. He's the Mike Ditka. Right. Yeah. He played when I played. He's got all the attitude, and he was great on Hard Knocks. And yeah, he was just awesome. But I'll tell you, you know, Philadelphia again. Sure. Uh, the guy that I uh, I got a great they had a great draft. They had a great draft. I they, mean, you know, another you, great draft. The defense yeah. is going to be good. They lost a bunch of players free agency because they had to play. They had to finally pay Jalen Hurts, yeah. who by the way had a unbelievable Super Bowl. If not for that fumble, they probably win that game against yeah. Kansas City. Yeah, and he got paid. 
And if he got paid, where do you see what uh, Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert are going to get this summer? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be close to 50 million a year, which is amazing. A little more than they were paying back in in the 80s and early 90s, huh? (laughs) Jeez, I made uh, at the top of my career, I I made about 3 million a year for about six years, which is a good good living and it was good money back then. Do you know, I think Phil Sims in his career, because he's a little bit older than I am. Probably made a total think, of five million bucks or seven right, million bucks something, or something like right, that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. He's made more money winning that Super Bowl and just being Phil Sims than he ever did actually playing the game. And you've done pretty well with endorsement. You've done over 25 different endorsements. You are kind of a, you, you're, you're right in the sweet spot of what endorsers look for. Likeable, well-known, good-looking, self-effacing, all the stuff that we, Madison Avenue guys, look for. Well, we're lucky. Uh, at least I was lucky, you know, playing at the right time. You know, my agent was David Falk. I don't know if you've seen the, oh, the sure. movie Air. Yes, yes. The movie Air? Yeah, he's, he's so pretty my, good. He's pretty good. Yeah, so my name is mentioned in the movie Air. Dave, the the actor playing David Forks, uh, Fox says to Sonny Vaccaro, hey, listen, I got this new, young, good, great-looking quarterback from Maryland. And the uh, I guess Matt Damon's character basically says, I don't give a shit. Right. I, want, <laughs> I, want, I want Michael Jordan. I want Jordan. I want Jordan. Right, exactly. So I had David. So David was really tuned into Madison Avenue and marketing his athletes. And, you know, I was able to link on to a lot of different things and do a lot of different products. And now in the radio world and the radio simulcast TV world, uh, the, you know, the, the opportunities for endorsement are endless, endlessly. Yeah. So uh, endlessly coming to both me and Gio. And I'm pretty fortunate enough to be a part of that. Well, Boomer, man, I appreciate the time. Continued success. I hope your son stays well. Yep. You're a gentleman and a class act. I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate it, Donnie. Thank you for having me on. Have a great day. Hopefully it's not another 15 years before we talk. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Thank you, buddy.